Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2018, volume 56, number five. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month is titled, Does Pulmonary Rehabilitation Need More PR? What's this one about? So we're just discussing the really important uh, issue of pulmonary rehabilitation. So this is rather a Cinderella intervention, yet it's got enormous benefit for patients with lung disease. And we just really talk about the benefits and also some of the issues that we currently have with getting patients to have it. So this was driven by an interesting uh, conclusion reached by Cochrane reviewers who decided that they don't need any more evidence in terms of the benefits of This is right. So Cochrane do this when they've got so much evidence that they recognise that a systematic review process, even if you had an enormous sort of research article, wouldn't change the direction of the research. They, They, in a sense, close the systematic review process. And they've done that on pulmonary rehabilitation because the evidence for it is that it just works. So people with COPD, having been through a pulmonary rehabilitation process, end up with big improvements in outcomes yep so they you know things like walking distance uh, breathlessness and perhaps most importantly of all quality of life all those sort of indices are improved by pr and some of this is in stark contrast to what we see with some drugs that we've reviewed recently where we've seen marginal differences in lung function changes by comparison pulmonary rehabilitation doesn't seem to do much for your lung function but does for other aspects that's that are right important. so so you know anyone who who's uh, a regular follower of dtb will know that we're often when we're looking at regular medications for copd we're talking about the nuances of raised fev ones and whether it's clinically or um, statistically significant um, and we're talking about whether the quality markers are enough to actually demonstrate anything clinical PR is very simple. It works. And it's even better than that because there is a national audit that goes on that looks at real world situation of of what patients achieve having PR. So it's even being regularly monitored in a way that drug therapy isn't at all. So it works. It does good things to patients. What's the problem with accessing it? So there seems to be multi-faceted issues here. First of all, there are a lot of clinicians, GPs, um, who simply are unaware that it exists and that it is a of such such benefit. Also, there are issues around patients themselves often are not too happy on joining groups of classes. And also, of course, the logistics, if you are working, having to attend a six-week program during working hours can obviously be an issue for some people as well. But a particular concern seems to be its profile. There doesn't seem to be enough emphasis. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. I think if you know if this was a drug, we would be having it advertised on the pages of journals. You know, throughout it would be, as we point out, it would be on billboards, blazoning its efficacy. And of course, because no one makes money from this sort of thing, it doesn't have that high profile or advertising clout. So time to raise its profile and push it a bit harder. Ab- absolutely right. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews the use of safinamide for Parkinson's disease. So let's start with some basics. What is safinamide? So this is a monoamine oxidase type B inhibitor. So this is very similar to rosagiline and seligiline, which have both been around for, for many years. And it's used as an additional treatment in patients with Parkinson's disease. So normally it fits into the management of 
early stage where motor problems are not a problem or later on when people have developed motor problems with levodopa? Exactly. So very often people will be started with levodopa decarboxylase inhibitor for motor symptoms. That's that's the standard sort of, if you like, absolute pivotal treatment for most patients with Parkinson's. And then with time, very often people get motor complications, loss of effect, end of dose effects, that sort of awful on-off problem where they might suddenly find that they've frozen, and also dyskinesia. So when those things start to kick in, this is often when monoamine oxidase type B inhibitors are used as an adjunct. So evidence of benefit of safinamide, what were they looking at? So they were looking at the mean change in daily on time with no or non-troublesome dyskinesia. So it's quite a mouthful, but what they were basically looking at was how much better are patients when they take this drug, how much more time do they have when their functioning motor is normal with only a little sort of non-troublesome dyskinesia or none at all. And the evidence base that we reviewed is two trials? Yes, we have two randomized controlled trials, both about 24 weeks. One of them was had an 18-month extension study on top to sort of look at long-term issues. So we've got, let's say, two studies, and these both demonstrated that there was a between 30 minutes and an hour of mean daily increased total on time compared to placebo. So both a statistical and clinically significant. Yeah, the EMA felt that that was clinically significant. Harms? So well tolerated on the whole. Dyskinesia, headaches, hypertension were the sorts of um, adverse effects um, that were picked up in the studies, but, but on the whole pretty well tolerated. But limitations of the evidence largely seem to be around where the trials were conducted. Yeah, so one of the studies, 80% of the participants um, came from India. And one of the issues, obviously, with these international studies is sometimes common practice doesn't mirror that of um, your own patients. So, for example, in India, it is common practice to use anticholinergic drugs very early on in the management of Parkinson's disease. So, in fact, 40% of patients in the study were on an anticholinergic. So how relevant or directly relevant is the UK-based clinical practice is hard to say because we don't know how many UK-based patients there were. This is it. One of the issues as well with the study was that there were a limited number of over 75-year-olds. And I guess as we see most often in clinical trials, it was against placebo. We don't know how it compares with the existing two MAOIB inhibitors. That's right. So we have no comparative data. And I think the thing to look at, safinamide, is six times more expensive than selegiline and 25 times more expensive than rasagiline. So it is an expensive drug with currently really no um, comparative data to say whether it's better or not than they are. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month discusses the use of bezlotoxumab in the prevention of recurrence of Clostridium difficile infection. Uh, So C. diff has been a high-profile issue for many years. What's the issue? I find C. diff fascinating because, of course, the issue with C. diff is that it is a bacteria that is found normally in the gut. About 30% of adults may well carry C. diff normally in their gut, and it's only when your normal flora in the gut is damaged by antibiotic courses that the toxins from C. diff can start to then create inflammation damage and and cause diarrhea and what we think of as uh, C. diff. So the typical approach to managing a C. diff infection at the moment would be what? Yeah, so the standard management of C. diff, you might start off, it's a very mild case, you may not uh, manage it anything other than conservatively. 
But anything else, you're looking at management with courses of antibiotics, classically uh, metronidazole, vancomycin, and increasingly fidaxomycin. So bezlotoxumab is a MAB. What does it do? Yeah, so this is interesting. So what way this works is it is a monoclonal antibody that binds to toxin B. C. diff creates two toxins, toxin A and toxin B, and bezlotoxumab binds to toxin B. So what what way this works is that when you treat a patient uh, with C. diff, you give them their course of antibiotics and you give them a single dose of bezlotoxumab. And the idea behind it is that binds to toxin Bs and prevents the recurrence of C. diff uh, from then on. So it's not a replacement for antibiotics. It's used concurrently with antibiotic treatment. And what evidence do we have for it? So we have two trials of both of 12 weeks. And they looked the, the main outcome they were looking at is basically the recurrency rate. And what, what you can demonstrate is you get about an, a 10% absolute reduction, risk reduction in recurrence um, versus placebo. So in one study, there was about a recurrence rate of 17 or so percent in the bezlotoxumab group versus about 27, 28 percent in the placebo group. So you can look at that 10 percent absolute risk reduction, number needed to treat to prevent a recurrence in 12 weeks of 10. But when the EMA particularly looked at it, they were suggesting that there are higher risk groups for whom the evidence is slightly better and they looked at some of those subgroups so the ones that they identified in particular I think were those over 65 those who had more than one episode those with severe disease and those who were immunocompromised but there were still some limitations of the evidence yes I mean the, the, the study design was some methodological issues I think the study so for example if there was no response to the treatment the, these patients were considered to not have had a recurrence so there was some imbalance in in the way the study was designed, which I think adds a certain uncertainty to the results. And in terms of harms, there was a slight discrepancy between guidance from the American FDA and EMA on cardiovascular issues. Yeah, so there was an element of heart failure-related events that were picked up in the studies, 2% in the bezlotoxumab group versus about 1%, 0.9% in the placebo group. The FDA were concerned about that. The EMA, the Europeans, weren't. And cost? Well, this is where things just have become, frankly, ludicrous. I think two and a half, roughly, thousand pounds for a one-off treatment. And with an NNT of 10, it means you've got to spend 24,000 pounds to prevent one recurrence of uh, C. diff. Now, that may, I suppose, be very important in certain group of patients, but um, that does seem an extremely expensive way of managing this, particularly as we have... There in on, in the sort of uh, bylines, a whole new approach to the management of C. diff around using fecal transplants. So so far, in terms of national guidance, so we we have nothing at the moment. But uh, Nice are producing a technical appraisal, which is meant to be published uh, in May this year. So that'll give us a feel for its cost effectiveness Indeed, and whether yeah. that two and a half thousand stacks up against other resources. Absolutely, it may well be that I'm missing something here, but it does seem um, currently not to stack up. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit dtb.bmj.com and for any comments, please email us at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you very much.